Well, hey, look, it, it's, it's great to be here, and it's great to be able to continue on on this journey of the prequel that we've been doing. And tonight, rather than kind of like spending a lot of time moving about, I want to jump right into it. I want uh, If we can be real, and I'm so glad we sang this last song that we did, because I want us to have in this session, as we look at God's Word, a chance to reassess ourselves in the language that you use and the thoughts that we think about God. And so that last song that we sang, that, that amazing line from the bridge is, you're never going to let me down, you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down. But I want to ask you, what do you do when we have lyrics like that, that are amazing and beautiful, what do you do when God lets you down? What do you do? Question? Yeah? What do you do? Pray harder? Yeah? What do you do? It's challenging, eh? Because, I mean, there's this, there's, this tool, there's this two sides of us, eh? There's the Christians that are like, I want to believe and want to be like, yes, God will never let me down. And so for some of you, when I ask that question, you'll probably be doing gymnastics in your head being like, well, God doesn't let you down. Technically, it might feel different, but he doesn't let you down. And you do like mental gymnastics trying to set, change the situation around you to make your faith fit with what you're seeing. Does that make sense? Well, others of you, when you hit that scenario, you probably just drop the whole thing. I mean, if you're anything like me or most humans at some point, when you feel like God has failed you, or when it seems like God has failed you, you just ditch it. Be like, well, this is your fault, God. I'm out. Peace. See you later. Because chances are, despite the regularity that we sing songs like that and the language that we use in churches about a victorious God and a strong God and a powerful God and a God who's never going to fail us, never going to leave us, never going to forsake us, all that good stuff. The reality is when I ask that question, what do you do when God fails you? 95% of you probably can immediately think of a scenario where you felt like that, right? And then the other 5% of you are like, God's amazing. In which case, good for you. Peace out. We'll see you in 25 minutes when we sing again. But for the rest of us, some of you are like, I'm peacing out anyway. Um, for the rest of us, this is a very, very real question. And so the 5% of you, you guys are fine. But for me, this was really, really true. I remember, um, so my background, again, is in an organization called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. Um, it's a missions organization, and it's filled with all kinds of like, charismatic, Pentecostal, super faith-filled kind of people. And YWAM's bread and butter is kind of stories where everything looked like it was about to fall apart, the odds were stacked against you, and then at the last second, Jesus comes through and saves it, right? Most of our church stories are like that, but YWAM was like that in like this intense environment. So always the language we're getting about God is, hey, if you feel like God has told you it, run for it, and trust me, he'll come through when it counts. And so I was kind of fed on this. For years and years in YWAM, and this was kind of my understanding of how, who God was and how God worked. And that was cool, and that worked fine for me. And then one of those difficult scenarios came up. So my role in YWAM, I'm sure you guys know, is I was in a band called Evergreen, and we played shows all across the UK. But one of the things you'll know is, um, thank you to that one fan, um, <laughs> who probably hasn't listened to our music anyway. Uh, yeah. The reality is, if you are in a band, and particularly if you're writing original music, you are not going to make money. Like, it is a terrible exercise. So our regular day is we take thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear into a $1,000 car to go play a show where we pay $100 to play. Like, that was usually the economics of how our band worked. And so we would try to go and drive all these places and get shows, but no one would pay us, and we'd end up costing petrol to get there and back. We ended up, over a period of a few years, 
getting into quite a big debt. A huge part of that is a story of a manager who actually stole some money from us, which is ridiculous and long and so cliche that a manager took money from us that we're so sad it happened, but it did. And through the series of a long stories event, we ended up in quite significant debt to the Wyoming base that we were in. And that was really tough for us. It was really challenging. And so we'd often meet in the mornings to pray and talk it through. And we had this big debt and it was tough. And so we're praying one morning. And as we're praying, I feel like God says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe out your debt. And I was like, no, no, God's not going to do that. No, I'm not hearing right. But I, all these stories in Wyoming kept coming through. And yeah, I felt my faith building. And I felt like, yeah, I feel like God's saying he's going to wipe our debt. We're going to get some donations or something through. And it's going to happen by this date in like a month and a half. So we had like 3,000, like three, 4,000 pounds were in debt. Not massive, but when you're earning nothing and paying money, 4,000 feels like the most amount of money in the world. And so we were in debt. And I felt like God say in this month and a half time period, I'm going to pay it off. And I was like, this is, oh, what do you wrestle? Do I say it? Do I not say it? Do I just hold it quietly? But then am I not having faith if I don't tell people and God will punish me for not being faithful? And I went through this whole internal wrestle. And so I said to my other bandmates, I was like, guys, I don't know if this is right or not, but I feel like God's saying he's going to take our debt away. And they're like, cool, bro. Like, I don't know what you say to that other than good for you. I don't know if they believed it or didn't believe it, but I felt like it was a step of faith I had to make. And so I prayed. I said, okay, God, I believe you're going to wipe our debt. And so we, you know, over the few weeks, I kept praying that saying, yeah, God, I believe you're going to wipe our debt away. And the, the faith in me built so strong. I was like, yes, this is what God is saying. This is just the same story that I've grown up on years and years and years. This is what Wyoming has been built on. This is the inheritance that I have as part of the mission. You know, I use all this language to make myself feel better about it. But I kept saying, okay. And then the deadline came closer and not a lot of donations came through. We didn't sell a lot of CDs because we weren't that great. And, um, the deadline came closer and closer. And, but as the deadline got closer, my faith got stronger and stronger. Like, no, God has said he's going to wipe out our debt. I believe it. I believe God's going to do this. And I believed and I believed and I told other people about it and said, hey, can you be praying? I feel like God's promised us this big thing. And as the deadline came closer and closer, it ends up the day before the deadline and we are further in debt than when I felt like God told me we we're going to be out of debt. So we'd gone backwards in the whole debt forgiveness thing. And I'm feeling like it's the day before. And I'm feeling down. But you know those stories in church. You know how those stories go. I've heard them before when someone's like, it was bad. It was the day before. And I didn't have money to pay it. But I just got down on my knees and I fasted and I prayed. And in that last second, God came through. And so I was like, this is going to be me. In that last second, and I fasted and I prayed and I felt like I did everything right. And then the day comes. And I'm like, all right, this is it. By this day, God's going to wipe out our debt. So I kept checking our bank account balance, kept checking in with the accountants, like anything new? And they're like, no, why would there be? You're going more into debt. And so they kept asking and asking, and I kept asking and asking. And the day comes, and five o'clock comes, the accountants close the doors and they go home. But I keep thinking, well, okay, technically God can do it whenever he wants to. He's not bound to business hours. So I'll keep waiting. And then it came like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And it's like 1130. And I was still like, no, it's okay. God's still got time. And then it became 1201. And I was like, that's okay. God, you know, time zones are different. It's still, it's still this day in America. We still got a few hours. And I went to sleep and I woke up the next day and we were still in debt. 
And I know this feels like a trivial story, but for me, this was huge. I felt like I'd taken this big faith step on what I felt like God had told me. And all of a sudden, it all came crashing down. And whether it's in a small story like this, or whether it's through your own lives and what you believe God had for you, maybe you had a job you thought was lined up for you. Maybe you had a relationship that you thought God was destined for you to work in. Maybe it was a family you thought was going to be perfect. Maybe it was an area of the city you're moving into. All of us has been in those scenarios where you felt like God probably said something and you ended up there and it felt like he failed. What do we do with that? How do we incorporate that when most of our theology is about victory, overcoming, trampling over death, moving on into victory in the world? How do you reconcile those two things? And so it's with that we come to our theme for tonight in the prequel, which is exile. Now, the story of Israel is they had to go through this very same thing. But to understand the exile, you need to remember where Israel's come from. If you've been a part of this prequel series, you've been able to follow along with the story of Israel, which is this small, 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 almost relatively insignificant nation that suddenly had big beliefs. You know, Israel believed that their God, no one else's, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Philistines, not the Canaanites, no one else, but their God was the creator of everything. And their God specifically chose their ancestor, Abraham. Out of the whole world, he said to Abraham and said, you, I'm going to work through you. And so the Israelites all came from Abraham. And now think, if you're an Israelite, you're holding on to these stories. This same God, when you ended up in slavery in Egypt, under firm oppression, this God did what no other God had ever done. He brought an entire nation out from slavery with the 10 plagues. He parted the sea for them to physically walk through and end up and gave them his law specifically to them. God had saved them like he'd saved no one else. And then they end up in the promised land. This is what God had given them. This is what it was supposed to be. And they're filling the land and they're conquering. And eventually they move to the point of getting kings. And if you remember the story of King David, he's this amazing king who's able to unify the different tribes and gather together this whole system of power into this one strong nation state. And they're pushing their borders out and they're claiming the land. And by Solomon's reign, they are the dominant global power in the world. All of God's promises had come true. Everything that they wanted had now come to pass. It couldn't get any better, right? And on top of that, in this amazing new reign that Solomon was doing, the cherry on top was the temple. The temple. It wasn't just some building. It was the presence of God manifest there. If you read the stories of the consecration of the temple, they've built it. They've done all these amazing architecture and designs and everything has been built so perfectly and they go to consecrate it and the whole nation gathers around and they sacrifice animals and they sing songs of praise and worship. And what's amazing is as they sing, God's presence descends like a thick, heavy cloud. The ground shakes. The whole world is revolving and turning as God makes this temple his home. It records this whole nation of people, everyone assembled there. When God fills the temple, everyone's flat on their face in a second because the heaviness of God's presence is there. God was physically with them. So if you're an Israelite during the reign of Solomon and these kings, you're feeling pretty good about life, eh? Like this is a good time to be an Israelite. We're the chosen people. God saved us in the past. We have the strongest kingdom. And on top of it, we have God's physical presence within us. So if any nation tries to come and attack us, well, they're not going to take Jerusalem because God flipping lives here. What, they're going to destroy the temple? 
He leveled the whole nation when he moved in. What's going to happen when someone tries to attack it? And they built up this whole solid theology about how everything was going to go well for them, how it was going to be victory after victory. They had that great promise to King David saying, I'm going to make an, a kingdom out of your line that will never fail. I'm going to bring up a ruler out of David who will never cease, whose kingdom will never end, whose kingdom will spread to the edges of the earth. This was all the language they developed over years and years and years. Pretty good time to be an Israelite. Victory, power, strength, God is with them. But what you see happening in the story of Israel is as they become so comfortable with the kingdom and God's presence and God's power, you begin to see the shift in their attitudes where they begin to take for granted God's favor over them. They begin to take for granted God's uh, presence, his goodness, his protection. And they begin to just kind of dabble around with a few other things. You know, God's been good to them, but there are some other nations that are doing pretty well right now. Let's just bring in some of their gods and we'll worship to them as well. It's not going to hurt. We'll keep doing the stuff at the temple. Yahweh's not going to get angry, but on the hilltops and in the cities, we'll just sprinkle in some animal sacrifice and Maybe some child sacrifice to, you know, appease those gods. And it just began to shift the culture a little bit. And suddenly the rich and the ruling class, if you were here for our Micah series in the beginning of the year or end of last year, you remember those stories where Micah begins to rant and rail against how it was like they reached the summit and that was all they'd ever wanted. Victory was all they'd ever known. And they just assumed God was going to keep doing that for them. And so they began to take shortcuts Rich people wanted more land because if you ever have something, you always want more of it, right? And so they always try and take a little bit more. And then when the poor would kick up a fight in the courts, they'd just pay off the judges. And judges were fine with it because they were making a little bit of cash on the side. So the rich people just started to literally steal land off the poor and pay the political system to allow them to do it. And now theoretically, some prophets should have shown up there and said, hey, this isn't okay. God says this isn't okay. We can't treat our neighbors like this. But there are some prophets that realized that they could get a little kickback if they prophesied a little bit more nicely about what God was doing. I mean, God was in the business of victory, wasn't he? It's only been victory thus far for us. Maybe he'll just keep being victorious. And so prophets begin to prophesy. Yep, it's all going to be fine. I see God's favor over you. You can only go up. The Lord has blessed you. He has kept you. And they just pocket a little bit of money. And before you know it, you begin to see, when you read the story of Israel, the fabric of their society begins to fall apart. They still keep doing stuff at the temple, but God no longer becomes the foundation for who they are, the reason for being their core identity. God becomes something they got to appease in order to stay on top. Does that make sense? God becomes something that I use in order to get what I want. And when I can get what I want, yeah, I'll keep praying as long as I need to. And that became their whole system. And then some other nations got pretty strong. At the time, just above Israel, there's this kingdom called Assyria, and they began to get really powerful. The kings began to dominate. Their military campaigns were just incredible, and they defeated anyone they came up against. And suddenly, the northern kingdom of Israel was under pressure because they were the next person in line for the Assyrian invasion. But surely God wouldn't let them fall, right? God is victorious. God is good. God is kind. God has led them this far. This is their promised inheritance land. Doesn't matter that they've been sacrificing their children in fires. Doesn't matter that they've been taking money from the poor and stealing land and calling it God's will. Doesn't matter. God, we've still sacrificed. God will be fine. 
And so they end up launching this huge rebellion. All the prophets are saying, God will be with us. He'll never fail. God will never fail you. He's never going to let you down. God's never going to let you down. God's never going to let you down. There's a couple prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Amos who are like, mm, guys, you, you've walked away from God so long ago. He's not going to help you out here. But why would we listen to them? Our Psalms say God's never going to let us down. And so they go and rise up in revolt against the king of Assyria. And what you read is heartbreaking. They are utterly and completely defeated. Through the series of a couple of years and different sieges, the king of Assyria eventually sweeps through the nation, goes to every town and village and burns it to the ground, rapes, kills, and pillages the people there until only the capital city of Samaria in the northern kingdom of Israel is left. He lays siege to it, and before you know it, the whole city is destroyed. The walls are torn down. The people dragged outside, kicking and streaming. And the Assyrians were strong and they were smart. See, they didn't want to leave behind any sort of people who could come back and rebel later. So their policy was when you defeated a land, you took all the people out of it. And you didn't just go put them back somewhere else in your own land. You split them up and you spread them across the nations. You send them everywhere so they can't ever hope to gather together again. And then the land that they inhabited, you bring other people and fill it. And that's what happens. In the northern kingdom of Israel, which was made up of the 10 tribes, with the Assyrian invasion, they are exiled. And they're essentially lost from the pages of history. They're deported into the kingdom of Assyria, and we still to this day don't know what's happened to them. They were so fully and completely defeated and annihilated and exiled that they did not return. And you wonder, as they were marching, being marched away from the city, whether they were singing that song, you're never going to let me down, right? The southern kingdom of Judah fared a little bit better. Israel had, had a civil war and there were two kingdoms at the time. The southern kingdom made up of Judah and Benjamin. They had the city of Jerusalem and they had the temple, so they were a little bit more special, right? And uh, they did a little bit better. They still fought the Assyrians, but when the Assyrians came down, they surrounded the entire city until only Jerusalem was left like a little spot of Israeli power in the sea of an Assyrian army. And it's only at that point that you see the King Hezekiah call out to God and say, um, God, have mercy. You see him pray to God saying, God, have mercy. We do not deserve your forgiveness. We have turned away from you and from your law and for what you've called us to, but look down and have favor and forgive your people, Judah. And what's amazing is that God does. It's this most incredible moment where the city is surrounded. There is no hope. And then in the night, the Bible says that an angel of the Lord goes out and decimates the Assyrian army. They wake up in the morning and their troops have been massacred by something or someone they don't know, but not a single Israelite left those city walls. And then the king of Assyria is called back on urgent business and Judah is saved. Now, what does that do for your story, eh? I'm sure Judah was singing, you're never going to let, never going to let me down. They'd have been stoked, eh? They'd have been singing that song all day, every way. And they did. Their hearts did turn back to God. And they did really believe that God was doing things. But it didn't take long until the scourge of exile came on Judah's door as well. Within a hundred short years, they repeated all of the same mistakes that Israel did. They began to worship all these other gods doing utterly detestable and abhorrent practices in worship to them. They began to abuse their fellow countrymen, 
distort the scales of justice for their own profit and say that it was God's will the whole time. This is what God has ordained us to. He's called us to victory, to power, to triumph, to judgment. He will be fine. He will be with us. He's never going to let us down. And they sang that for a hundred years until another strong nation arose on the scene. The Assyrians ended up falling apart and you get the Babylonian empire getting strong and stronger and stronger. And the Israelites have this choice of, do they pay taxes? Do they pay tribute to the Babylonians and become like sub subservient state that just does whatever the Babylonians want? Or do they, do they believe in a God that's strong and powerful? Do they believe in a God that can rescue, him, rescue them like he did before? Do they believe in a God that'll never let... Can you see how the theology comes through here? Can you see how it's the same theology we have? Anyway, they believed that God was going to be with them. Didn't matter how their lives looked. Didn't matter what they valued. They thought they had everything in the bag, so God's going to be with us. We already have all of his promises, so we'll be fine. And uh, they rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And again, it's the same story as what happens to Israel. The city is surrounded. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to it. And before you know it, his troops break through the walls. They tear apart the walls piece by piece until not a single defense is left. They go through and they go to the palace, which was the symbol of Israel's kingdom strength. This is where the king ruled, the, the king that God was never going to let fall, mind you. That's where that king lived. And they burn it to the ground. And then they go to the most holy place, the temple of God. This was God's house. Do you remember how thick God's presence was when he was there? Do you remember how not a single Israelite could physically stand in God's presence? But here come the Babylonians. They strip it of all of its gold. They go into the Holy of Holies where you're supposed to die if you walk through the presence. And they take everything out of there. And they burn the temple to the ground, pulling it apart piece by piece until nothing is left of Jerusalem except for blackened rubble. And again, the Babylonians take everyone out of the city and deport them back to the homeland and put new people in. How much do we have a theology of exile? Do we have space for what happens when God fails? Because Israel certainly didn't. At this time, they thought they'd gotten everything they needed from God. They had the land, they had a kingdom, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices. What else do you need? You don't need anything else, right? They were satisfied with everything in front of them, so they weren't going to trust or believe or need anything more from God. God had already given them everything, and they just needed God to maintain it. And what you see is in the exile, this watershed moment for, for Israel and their theology and their thinking. It's utterly fascinating. But to give you a window in, I want to read to you a piece of scripture that they would have written as they were marching away in exile. So again, they've just seen their home city burned to the ground. They've seen the horrors of war, and they now have to reconcile their theology of a God who never lets them down with what's literally happening around them. I'd love to read you. It's the most heart-wrenching, beautiful poem. It comes from the book of Lamentations. And if you're ever having a terrible day and you feel like God has failed you and you feel like all the Christians are just too happy, go flip and read Lamentations. You'll feel a lot better about your life. So this comes from Lamentations 2. And it says this, Oh, 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 how the master has cut down daughter Zion. From the skies dashed Israel's glorious city to earth and in his anger treated his favorite as throwaway junk. His anger is blazing. He knocked Israel flat. He broke Israel's arm and turned his back just as the enemy approached. He came on Jacob like a wildfire from every direction. Like an enemy, he aimed his bow. 
He bared his sword and he killed our young men. Our pride and joy, his anger like fire burned down the homes in Zion. The master became the enemy. He ate us for supper. He chewed us up and spit out all of our defenses and he left us moaning and groaning in pain. He plowed up the fields and he trashed his favorite places. God wiped out Zion's memory of feast days and Sabbath and he angrily sacked the kings and the priests alike. God abandoned his altar. He walked away from his holy temple and he turned the fortifications over to the enemy. As they cheered in God's temple, you'd have thought it was a feast day. God drew up plans to tear down the walls of daughter Zion. He assembled his crew and set to work and he went at it. Total demolitions, the stones themselves wept. Her city gates, her iron bars and all disappeared in the rubble. Her kings and her princes are off in exile. There's no one left to instruct or lead us. Her prophets are useless. They neither saw nor heard anything from God in all of this. The elders of daughter Zion sit silent on the ground. They just, they throw dust on their heads and they dress in burlap. The young virgins of Jerusalem, their faces are, are marred with dirt. My eyes are blind with tears and my stomach is in a knot. My insides have turned to jelly over my people's fate. Babies and children are fainting all over the place. They're calling to their mothers, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And then they faint like dying soldiers in the streets. They breathe their last in their mother's laps. How can I understand your plight, dear Jerusalem? What can I say to give you comfort, Zion? Who can put you back together again? This bust up is past understanding. Your prophets, they courted you with sweet talk. They didn't face you with your sins so that you could repent. Their sermons were all wishful thinking and deceptive illusions. Astonished passerbys can't believe what they see. They rub their eyes and they shake their heads over Jerusalem. Is this the city voted most beautiful? The best place to live? But now our enemies gape slack-jawed. They rub their hands in glee. We've got them. We've been waiting for this. Here it is, they shout. God did carry it out. God, item by item, exactly what he said he'd do. He always said he'd do this. Now he's done it. He's torn the place down. He's let your enemies walk all over you and he's declared them the world champions. Give out heart cries to the master, O repentant Zion. Let your tears roll like a river day and night. Keep at it. No timeouts. Keep those tears flowing. As each night watch begins, get up and cry out in prayer. Pour out your heart face to face with the master. Lift high your hands and beg for the lives of your children who are starving to death out on our streets. Look at us, God. Think it over. Have you ever treated anyone like this? Should the women have to eat their own babies, the children that they raised for food? Should priests and prophets be murdered in your own temple? Boys and old men lie in gutters on the streets, 
and my young men and women were killed in their prime. Angry, you killed them in cold blood and cut them down without mercy. You invited like friends to a party men who swooped down in attack so that on the big day of God's wrath, no one would get away. Oh God, the children that I have loved and reared are gone, gone, gone. Oh, doesn't that hit you? Can you hear the pain? Can you hear the wrestling and the doubt and the fear and the questioning? As everything was supposed to be perfect, they were the people on top. Everything was going to be great because God was victorious, but now it hasn't worked out that way. And they end up in exile. What do you do when it feels like God has failed you? Do you turn away and walk away and leave? Do you abandon hope? Do you get angry? Do you call out at God? Do you just drop everything at once? And the danger is in our churches, if we only have a theology of success and victory and power, we are not equipping you for a reality of exile, which you will face at some point. Because the story of the Bible includes the resurrection and the victory of God. Yes, it does, but it also includes exile. Jesus only got to the resurrection once he went through the cross and died. And it's naive for us to think that we're going to go from victory to victory to victory without ever having to walk through a period of desert and pain and questioning. And my fear is that if we do not work on this, if we don't think about this, if we don't engage with God, when your moment of trial comes, when your moment of loneliness comes, when your moment of pain comes, you're going to walk away from God completely. But there is a theology of exile, a way of understanding God, even in the difficult moments. And this is what Israel fascinatingly begins to do. See, when they were in their land, they thought they were on top. They had it all perfect, right? What more could God promise them? If they had the land, if they had the temple, if they had the kingdom, if they have the power, what's left? They don't need anything more. And there's this fascinating thing about scripture that you notice when you begin to read it more fully is we as Christians, we're always looking for Jesus, right? Like every time we open up, like uh, Leviticus, wash your hands twice. What's that say about Jesus, right? We're looking, every page we're looking for something about Jesus. But there's this fascinating thing that you see develop in the story of Israel, which is that you don't have a lot of talk about a Messiah until Israel hits exile. You don't have a lot of prophecies about a coming king who will save and restore everything until Israel begins to face exile. They don't begin to know what they really should be longing for until they begin to have to walk through periods of pain and difficulty. They don't begin to understand that God's plan for them was so much bigger than just a territorial land where they could live. We look back and we can see that now, right? We look back through the vein of scripture and we see actually this whole thing has not been pointing just to the physical resurrection of a place. God is transforming everything. And we can look back at Israel and we say, well, yeah, you had a kingdom and you had a temple, but you didn't have Jesus. But they couldn't see beyond their face until they began to go through periods of exile. And if we're anything like them, I reckon we're the same. We are very easily satisfied in our faith, in our desires, in our wants, the things we value, the things that we think are important. We live in a very comfortable, beautiful nation sitting in a very comfortable church with a lot of very comfortable things set up in place for us. And does that mean God can't work in us? No, of course God can. But if 
our story is anything like the Bible story, it's that all of us will have to hit some, faith, some point of pain, difficulty, or trial before we begin to really focus on what's really important. Before we begin to lock in on what really, really matters. For me in Evergreen, I thought the whole thing was about getting debt-free because then I'd be in victory, then I'd be in power, and then I'd be awesome, and I'd have a cool story to tell about God. But that's what it wasn't, that's not what it was about. God didn't care so much about our money. God's, God's bigger than that. You know what happened though, is that as I went through that period of feeling so let down by God, I had to go back to him all the time and wrestle with doubt and fear and pain and questioning. And eventually we got to a point where we were able to pay off our debts in Evergreen. But that was a couple of years later through some flipping hard work, through some very difficult decisions, and through some refocusing on what really matters for us as a band that we never would have gone through had God just been like, da-da-da, everything's better now. We want God to work quickly and easily and fast, and sometimes he does that, but sometimes you got to walk through an exile before you know you need a Messiah. And that's what happens in Israel's story. Our favorite verse, most of us, uh, we would all know it, it's really popular and really common, is this verse called Jeremiah 29.11. For, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to fail you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's a great verse, eh? We all want to tattoo it on us or say it in our baptism video or write it on our something. You know, like it's a great verse that we hold on to because it feels good about us. But that's, that verse, can I read to you what was said right before that verse? Jeremiah said that to an Israel in exile. An Israel that had just seen their city burned that sees little children starving because there's not enough food, that had seen their countrymen die and pass away. To them, Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't, don't decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Oh, that would have been hard to hear. You just got carried back to Babylon who's torn apart your city and God's saying, seek the peace and welfare of that city. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name, and I've not sent them. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I'll come for you. And I'll fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Changes the context of that verse a little bit, eh? If we want to engage seriously with the story of God, and if we're going to wrestle honestly with the story of God in our lives, we will face exile because we're selfish, because we want things done our own way, because we consistently will choose short-term pleasure and sacrifice long-term gain for it. We are sinful 
And that's just where we're at. And sometimes we don't know what we really need until we walk through a period of difficulty and then God reminds us what we really need isn't what we wanted. It's so much bigger and it's what he has for us. Does that make sense? So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what your stage or your journey is. A lot of you, those 5% of you, might have just gone from victory to victory to victory to victory, in which case, awesome, good for you. But there may be some of you that are literally going through that period of exile right now. You feel like God has promised you something big. You feel like God has lined up something special for you, yet it's not coming through. I don't know if someone's promised you that you're going to hit your next level or you're going to reach that next anointing or that next mantle is going to come. I don't know what someone's promised you, but right now you feel like it's not coming through and you feel frustrated and angry. You feel like God isn't meeting you in this place. You feel like God has abandoned you. Well, if you are in that space, you're in good company because you're in there with pretty much everyone else who's ever walked the story of faith before you. And can I encourage you in these spaces, if you feel like you are in places or periods of exile, seek the welfare of the city that you are in. Don't rush out just waiting for God to magically fix it all. Don't just rush ahead saying, oh, it'll be better one day. Sit and be in that place. Because even in our pain and our difficulty, even in the places where we feel alone and abandoned, it's there that God often does the most deep and profound work in us. And if we're just rushing off to the next victory, to the next mountain to climb, we are going to miss what God is going to do now. If Israel had just gone away and moved on to the next thing, they never would have birthed this hope for a Messiah who was going to be so much bigger than just a kingdom of Israel. He was going to bring about the kingdom of God. And it's the same in you. Don't move on from the pain or the exile that you find yourself in because it's in there that you begin to discover a Jesus who is bigger and greater than anything you could have hoped for. And the lessons that God teaches you in exile are the ones you will carry through with you the rest of your life. Does that make sense? Be encouraged. Well, maybe you'll be a little bit depressed because it's not really a lighthearted message, eh? You might end up in a terrible place. But the reality is, at least you know if you are there, God is still with you like he was with Israel. He never left them in Babylon. You can read the stories of Daniel for that to be apparently true. Even Daniel in the heart of Babylon's empire saw God do amazing things. And even in the midst of your deepest pain, God is going to be working in and through you. But sometimes you need to go through that journey. You need to have a theology and an understanding of exile to come to a place of understanding God's victory and hope for you. Let's pray. Look, Jesus, this isn't... um, If I'm honest, it's not the nicest message to sit with. We do love those songs about you're never going to let us down. But God, our heart, as we study your scripture and as we look at the story of Israel today, our heart is we still want to sing those words because they are true. They were true for Judah and Israel when they were in the land, but they were true for Judah and Israel when they were in exile, and they were true when you brought them back and brought Jesus to their doorstep. God, you will never let us down. But also, you sometimes need to do deep work in us in difficult places. God, would you give us the courage to seek the welfare of the city that we're in, whatever place that may be. Help us to be there well. To sit there with what you are doing and allow you to minister to us in our pain, in our disappointment, and in our disillusionment. (coughs) So that we can truly sing that you're never going to let us down. 
but singing it from a place that has been through the walk and testing trials of faith rather than just blind naivety. God, you are with us. I pray for those in this room that feel that they are in a place of exile right now. God, would you comfort them as you comforted Israel in a way that just goes deeper than words, in a way that I can't explain. Would you be with them and would you let them know that now, even in that place, even in that dark, difficult space that they are in, you are there as well. And you do have a plan and a hope for us, your people. Just give us the courage to walk the road that you have for us, even when it's different from what we expected. Amen.